Greetings, welcome to The Dividing Line. James White along with you. And, of course, uh, in the control room, uh, the... If you notice that the, the rich can has been getting a little more use recently, and uh, I have no control over that, by the way. Um, and uh, so I was uh, recently informed that um, uh, Rich was out and about, and, and someone uh, recognized him um, and said he watches the dividing lines. So I predict that the, um, the uh, number of appearances of the rich cam will increase exponentially as... Uh, Rich attempts to um, maintain that ever-growing legion of adoring fans. A, a shout-out um, to Andrew. <laughs> what? What? A shout-out to Andrew. Is that, is that who it was? That's who it was. I got his name. His name's you, Andrew. Well, there you go. See what I mean? <laughs> and he, was, <laughs> he was really surprised to learn that I live up in his area. I wasn't really trying to uh, uh, make the point, uh, but now the point has I, been made. I have one fan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Thank you very much. Told you, not to get a worrying edgewise for for any anymore. It's pretty much done. So there you go. That's. Uh, but we, you all wanted it when we mentioned the rich cam. You were all like, "We want the rich cam. We want the rich thing." Okay. So, anyways, welcome to the program today. Of course, um, unless you're living under a rock, uh, your uh, Twitter feed, your Facebook feed is uh, just one. Story. T- well, there's two stories today, actually. Um, the major story that um, is all over the place producing a huge number of memes uh, is the passing of Ravi Zacharias. I was somewhat taken aback um, in light of the fact that the, the announcement of stopping treatment was, I thought, just a matter of days ago. Um, but um, RZIM has, uh, has taken two... Uh, difficult uh, hits over the past a number of years, obviously with Ravi's passing today and then Nabil Qureshi um, had really wasn't with RZIM for a long period of time, uh, but had become one of the primary speakers for at least a, a number of months, maybe a couple of years. I don't remember exactly how long it was. Um, but um, obviously, uh, our condolences go out to the family and to the the ministry uh, as well, because RZIM is very large and, in my experience, has sought to establish uh, a rather large uh, network uh, globally, and uh, so that means there's you know a lot of people are are impacted by something like this. Uh, far more than than us, uh, we're, we're, we're we may have a large outreach globally, but it's not because we have boots on the ground uh, globally. The only boots we have on the ground globally is me, um, and right now that ain't happen either. So, um, but a lot of folks, uh, especially working in um, uh, contexts of universities and uh, that type of outreach. And so, um, for those who knew him, I did not know uh, Robert Zacharias. We never met, never spoke, never corresponded. Uh, I was benefited uh, about 15 years ago or so um, for a period of time um, in my Islamic studies by RZIM, um, helped in my studying of Arabic, and so very appreciative of that. And um, so... We are uh, regularly reminded, if we will but listen, of the passage of time and the, uh, the shortness of, uh, of life as we think about uh, many who have uh, gone over the past few years, uh, what we would call big names, uh, Norman Geisler and Ravi Zacharias and R.C. Sproul and uh, 
Um, the reality is that's going to continue. <laughs> that's uh, that's how life here in a in a fallen world is. But in the midst of that, it is interesting uh, that uh, at the same time you say goodbye to one, we say hello uh, to Gareth Quabena. I think I, I don't know if I, who, who's supposed to know if you're saying something like that. We us Scottish people aren't expected to be able to figure things like this out. But um, Kofi, uh, Kofi's a dad now. I'm, I'm sure it's going to uh, have some very interesting um, results as far as Kofi's posts go in the future. But uh, um, sounded like there was a little bit of uh, stress and anxiety uh, toward the end. And uh, there was with my firstborn, too. He was in neonatal intensive care for three days. So, yeah, there was uh, stuff like that going on. Um, I know how that is. That, uh, that'll freak you out for a while. But uh, uh, believe, it, believe it or not, Kofi, you know, after, after the first one, you know, you've seen all the memes. The first kid, you know, you're sanitizing everything. And you've read all the books about children. And, you know, you're just doing all this stuff. And by, by second or third one, you know, you know it's just like, They'll live. <laughs> they're they're rough, tough little things. They'll they'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And uh, um, I know with with summer, you know, forty four hours laboring with Clementine uh, because it was all the natural birth stuff, and you know, all the all the girlfriends talking about what an incredible experience, all the rest of stuff. And then Janie comes along, and it's like, just get this kid out of me. <laughs> just give me drugs and get this over with, you know. It's just like, mm-hmm. yep, 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 yep. Uh, I know how that works. So anyway, uh, congratulations. And um, I, I've given where you live, I, I wasn't certain that they were going to allow births. <laughs> Maybe just put it off till, you know, just shut it down. You know, we, we can't, can't do that right now. Just hold on. Not allowed. No, stop. <laughs> That's... I'm wondering about some governors that they might not think that that would not be a bad idea. Let's just let's just hold off on that stuff for a while. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, congratulations uh, uh, on uh, on that. I was thinking this morning. Uh, it's funny. I d- does everyone's mind work this way? Um, uh, don't answer that question. I, I'm not sure that I want to answer that question actually. Um, but. My, my mind goes back over stuff that I've said, you know, like 24 for like 24, 48 hours. And it, it seems to do it unconsciously. And I was thinking about James chapter two. And I, I wanted to make sure uh, that I had communicated something with clarity. Uh, I, I did not want to, anyone to be confused about something. Because I... I think that the key issue in James chapter 2 is in verse 14. And what you have there is what benefit, what use is it, my brethren, if a certain one says, I have faith, but does not have works. Then you have the last portion of the verse, may dunatai he pistis sosai auton. Now, you'll notice I, I read that as a question. Um, and punctuation is a editorial thing. But when you begin a phrase, may, 
uh, one of the uh, negation particles in the in the Greek language. When you begin that way, that's it, it, it is a question that's being asked, but it's somewhat of a rhetorical question. Um, may dunatai not able hey pistis the faith sosai to save outon him. So is the faith. And I did mention that Pistis has the article and that the majority of commentators that I have read recognize the importance of seeing the fact that this is a particular kind of faith. It is a said faith, lege, and it is a me eke erga faith. It is a faith that has no works. So it is a faithless work. It is a, sorry, it is a workless faith. There you go. Um, and the question that is asked is, is that faith, is such a faith as this, able to save the one who claims to have it? And we heard... Um, one of the individual that was, uh, I don't have the video up any longer, but we heard the individual that was interviewing Dr. Wilson say that, well, James never suggests that uh, if you don't have works, you don't have faith. Well, <laughs> yes, he does. He says, he says that those very words right here. When he says, a workless faith cannot save, but what I may not have communicated as clearly as I, or, or didn't emphasize maybe as clearly as I should have, is some people, if, if you ask those who deny that repentance is a part of the gospel, if you ask those who deny the lordship of Christ is central to an understanding of the gospel, so submission to his, his, his will, that repentance means not just a turning away from sin, but a turning toward um, an obedience to Christ. If you if you take faith as as mere intellectual assent, then you struggle with this particular statement. Because as I understood what was being said, they were saying that a dead faith does save, that a workless faith does save. But you should just try to energize the dead faith by works, as if a dead faith could ever produce works in the first place. I don't even know, I don't even know how that works, to be honest with you. But it would seem that the answer from that very small group, um, when I say very small, I don't mean, well, see, by numbers, they're wrong. In church history, this is an exceptionally small group. Um, I would honestly argue that if you remove repentance from the gospel, you have lost the gospel. Um, you, you, it is, it is such a decrepit misunderstanding that it's, it's incredibly damaging and dangerous, but it does seem that the answer from their side to this question is yes, any faith saves any and all faiths save. 
even a non-functional faith, as they would put it, a faith that doesn't work. That's why I loved about that one meme that was posted yesterday on, on Twitter. Um, it was Bones, Dr. McCoy from the original Star Trek series. Um, he's not working, Jim. <laughs> he's busted. Yeah. Um, instead of saying, he's dead, Jim. Uh, and so, evidently, their answer to this question would be, yes. Yes, that, that faith can save him. Now, it would be easy for me to say, it's just obvious, given the context, that that's not what James is saying, but it's actually necessary, given the context. And that's what I wanted to emphasize. When you study the Greek language early on, um, in any beginning grammar, you will be introduced, and I just want to read it from somebody else, so it's not just me saying it, but you'll find this in any beginning grammar. So I happen to have mounts in my uh, in my accordance set up here, and under section thirty one point twenty, this is page three sixty two of the fourth edition. Uh, there are three ways to ask a question, along with the deliberative subjunctive. No indication is given as to the answer expected by the speaker. So that's the first way. The, the speaker is just asking a question, and there's the the text does not tell you what answer they are expecting to receive. Um, so, if you just say, ha basileus ton eudion, Matthew 27, 11, are you the king of the Jews? Um, there is nothing in that particular form that tells you what the expected answer is to be. But then, if the question begins with ooh, one of the two negation particles, ooh and may, Sometimes used together in the era subjunctive of strong denial, but we're not talking about that right here. If the question begins with ooh, the speaker expects an affirmative answer. Uh, so, didaskale, ooh melai soy, hati apalumitha? Mark 4.38, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And it would be really embarrassing uh, or actually insulting if it had been placed in the other form, which we'll look at in a moment, uh, you don't care that we're perishing. But the assumed, the assumed answer is yes. He he cares that we're that we are perishing. There is not an there is not an implicit accusation of carelessness. And then the third, if the question begins with may, the speaker expects a negative answer. So now, here's where you get. Some people who get a little bit on the uh, controversial side, because this is an important element. Me pontes glosis la lucin? 1 Corinthians 12.30. Not all speak in tongues, do they? Uh, not all are apostles, are they? And Paul uses the construction that has may as a part of its uh, form, and therefore the expected answer is no, not all speak in tongues, even though there are entire denominations that are based on the idea that, yes, all speak in tongues, um, Paul's assumed response is no, not all speak in tongues. So if the question begins with may, the speaker expects a negative answer, and so we go back to James 2.14, that last 
phrase is may dunata he pistis so sayautan. It starts with may. And so the expected answer, given the form that James uses, is that kind of faith cannot save him. That's the kind of faith cannot save him. So a workless faith is not a saving faith. That's what James 2.14 says, and that's what is then explicated. And then once you get to verse 18, Dykson, show me your faith by your works fits is where the, the connection is to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for we are his workmanship creating Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I, I said yesterday that the Reformed understanding of the gospel maintains the proper and necessary balance in this matter, and not just apologetically, but overall in its theology, which is so important, because the, the, the cliffs on both sides are, are steep cliffs, and not only is it theologically vitally important to see what the relationship is here, but the human, I don't, the human tendency, and I don't, I don't fully understand it, but the human tendency is to fall off the balance point when it comes not only to the, the glory of God in salvation, where we want to appropriate, in some fashion, control over salvation. I mean, th- that's, that's the very essence of the sacramental system of old Rome is a mechanism whereby mankind's will and mankind's will as expressed in the leadership of the church becomes absolutely determinative. And so even though you talk about grace, and even though you talk about the necessity of grace, you can't talk about the sufficiency of grace because that has been replaced with the the sufficiency of the human will. Um. Mankind wants to insert himself, and yet on the other side, then, is if it's all of God, all of grace, then there is nothing that mankind can do, yes, to bring yourself into, maintain, and finish the work of salvation. It's, it's all of God, no question about it. But where does God's purpose get to fit in here? Can God have a purpose? I mean, if why couldn't God just simply save us and then take us out of the earth? He could use ministering angels to come down and say, this is the gospel. That would be a pretty effective mechanism, wouldn't it? But he's chosen not to do that. He leaves us. He, he is reproducing his son in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are the body. And as is expressed so clearly in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. We are the result of his divine expression of power. And so there's no place 
even in the discussion of good works given to any type of alien merit, there is no place for saying that in at the end, we're going to see that it was all of God that got us into it, but then because God has worked in us, there is going to be some additional standing or level of merit that we're going to have by having obeyed Christ or anything like that. No. But it's plain that it's God's purpose that we be sanctified. It's plain that it's God's purpose that we be made like Christ. And there should be no one who hears commandments like or statements in Scripture such as no one will see God apart from holiness and run from them and try to explain them away. Um, the balance is we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus in union with him unto good works, which God has before ordained. Now, if you don't believe God can foreordain anything, if you, you know, if you don't have a, if you don't have a divine decree that is being worked out to the glory of God, I, I, I don't know how you make heads or tails of any of this stuff. To be perfectly honest with you, but God has decreed. He has before ordained. That's what it, that's what the decree is. That we are to walk in good works. So, this is an expression of his sovereignty, and it has reality in time. And so, that's in perfect harmony with James 2.14. That's in perfect harmony with James 2.18 and 2.20 and 2.24, if you will allow the context to speak for themselves. So, I think it's very, very important, and it helps us to maintain a balance that a lot of people do lose hold of. And when you've, if you've been in pastoral ministry, you, you encounter folks who just really struggle with the issue of assurance. They really struggle with um, knowing whether they have you know, real peace with God. And so you've had to deal with these things. And you can't, there are some people that have decided that to avoid any of that type of a trouble, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pass right over all of the texts um, that say examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith that exhort us to provide warnings so people just don't even I mean you've seen people just dismiss uh, the warnings in Hebrews for on on various sundry grounds try to try to get around them. But God uses those warnings to prick our conscience, to provide guidance and light. Um, and so the, the balance of Scripture is a beautiful thing to observe, uh, to see, and to see the consistency of James 2 with Ephesians 2 and Philippians 3 and Romans 4 through, well, all of Romans and, um, and everything else. So... If, like I said, if you expose yourself to the commentaries of the world, 
you will find lots and lots of people who will want to try to assert that there is a fundamental contradiction between James and Paul. It is, and Luther struggled with it. There's no question that Luther struggled with it. And for all his great insights, this is one he missed. And Augustine missed stuff, and Luther missed stuff, and Calvin missed stuff, and we all miss stuff. And that's one of the uh, real advantages of reading church history is God always uses very, very imperfect vessels. And um, there you go. Okay, uh, someone in a uh, Facebook group that I am a part of, which I will not mention because if I if I ever join a Facebook group, uh, then there are certain people that descend upon those Facebook groups and um, make my life miserable. Um, made a provide a link to a question from Reasonable Faith, and uh, our our good friend Dr. Craig William Lane Craig. Question number three hundred twenty six is. I, I don't remember this one. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> the sad thing is I may have already responded to this one. Sometime in the distant past. But I don't remember doing it, so we're going to do it again. Because if I don't remember it, then you probably don't either, and we're all just perfectly fine here now. Uh, but July of 2013, a... Uh, person writes in and says, I had a question regarding God's foreknowledge, which is a topic that consistently eats away at my heart. I was looking at an article Dr. Craig wrote on middle knowledge, and I was wondering, how does middle knowledge take us away from the idea of determinism? If God picks which world is created, and in that world someone I know is not saved and cannot be saved... Is this suggesting that in no such world would that person ever be saved? Now, if you are a relatively new listener to the program, you may not be familiar with the tenets of middle knowledge and what's called Molinism. Um, we obviously have talked about it a lot in the past and gone over it in various venues, and there's a... Um, two-evening, two-part YouTube series um, from back somewhere before 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, I think. Um, I did a response to William Lane Craig's views on Molinism at a Reformed Baptist church right next to Biola. (laughs) Uh, That's the closest we're going to get to a debate. Anyway, uh, so we've just... Just to remind everyone or to bring you up to speed, uh, Dr. Craig is a proponent of Molinism, probably the most popular proponent of Molinism. And the idea of Molinism is the concept of middle knowledge, that between the two moments, aspects of God's knowledge, which is God's perfect knowledge of himself, and then God's perfect knowledge of what he himself has done, will do, can do. Um, so it's natural and free knowledge. In between these concepts is something called middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is of what any free creature 
would do given any circumstances that free creature would be put into. So it's the idea that God knows sort of this archetypal John Smith. And somehow God knows without having chosen to create John Smith. This is this is to me where the whole system completely falls apart, where it's just utterly untenable, is that this knowledge is not found, is not grounded in God's creative decree. Um, it is not found, it's not grounded in any action of God. It's not, it does not flow from his will. He does not say, I am going to make John Smith in such and such a way. I'm going to make him this tall, with these characteristics, with this amount of mental power, um, and he's going to be this kind of person because he speaks this language and he's born at this time in history. No, none of that stuff is a part of middle knowledge because if you, if you put that in, then it's no longer relevant. The whole reason the system was created was to find a way to get around the sovereignty of God, to get around the idea of a divine decree. And so from some other source, you get this middle knowledge now, God may possess it fully internally to himself, but the specifics of it, who John Smith would be and what John Smith would do, does not flow from the action of God in defining and decreeing who John Smith would be or anyone else. So, that said, that's where this system is a philosophical system and it is not a biblical system by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the idea is that having this middle knowledge, God can then envision possible worlds. And he's the, the greatest supercomputer ever made. He, he makes quantum computing. You know, that's the new thing now. I don't understand it. I've read a little about it and just went, uh, it's beyond me. Um, but quantum computing. Uh, these new super-duper computers that people are hoping to basically make artificially intelligent. Um, and then you obviously end up having Terminators coming back to get us. So that's... All the movies are just, uh, they're, they're all coming true. Um, I Am Legend and Terminator, all at the same time. And it'll happen in 2020, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we remember 2020. <clears throat> didn't, didn't really think the beginning of the year is going to be as bad. But anyway, so um, God's a supercomputer, and he can take from this middle knowledge literally billions and billions of people, because there's billions of people on the planet right now, there always haven't always been, but that's still billions of people, and he can plug them in at different places. Now I'm not sure how you do this because obviously whoever John Smith is, John Smith's mommy and daddy were important to what John Smith is. So it it's not like every John Smith and Mary Brown is a 
remember those? Uh, none of you remember this, but for those of you who are old like me, remember Light Bright when you were a kid? I never got one of those, so I really, that's, that's one thing I've sort of felt sort of sad about in my life. Uh, but I was able to buy a Clementine one years ago, so that was sort of fulfilling. Just a childhood sadness of mine. Um, anyway, but uh, what? Okay. Explains a lot. Oh, thanks. Um, so, well, it's bright lights. I could make a Kuji out of out of out of a light bright. I really could. Uh, that would be that'd be awesome. Anyway, you have you've got these different colored pegs, and it's not like people are just a different colored peg. You can just I'm gonna plug it in over here. Oh, I'll plug it into a different center over here. And it's all always gonna do the same thing. So. Somehow, this middle knowledge is expansive enough to know that John Smith would, would respond to given circumstances as a Puritan and as a hippie in the 1960s. Okay? And so God's so big that he can put together these possible worlds. And these worlds can have different mountains and rivers and lakes and streams and different natural things going on uh, and different histories and, and, and all the rest of this stuff. And then he can just draw from, I guess there's, there'd have to be a finite number of these light bright widgets to, to play with. There, there'd have to be a finite number of possible individuals. But maybe there's an infinite number. That doesn't make any sense. But anyways, he can pull these individuals out and pop them in and see how a world would turn out. Now, he is micromanaging all of the circumstances. So you put John Smith in a particular world, and then you micromanage everything that happens in John Smith's life. Everything. Uh, to the clothes he wears, to the economic situation he finds himself in, to the weather, everything. And you get him to do what you need him to do to accomplish your purposes, because you know what he's going to do in any given situation, so you put him in the situations to get the result you want. But the whole point of the idea is he's still doing it freely. There's no decree. I mean, there's sort of a decree. But it's a decree that is based on and determined by the content of middle knowledge, which does not come forth from God. It exists some other way. Where it comes from, they never have an answer. So they think that they are, in essence, saving autonomy and free will. And you can say, well, if someone doesn't accept Christ and they're lost, it's their own free will, it's their own choice. They, they were given the opportunities and they, they didn't take them. Well, this raises all sorts of questions. I mean, it, it raises questions about, well, how many people can you put into a world? What if you put fewer people in the world? And Molinism... As a since Molinism is not constrained by being divine revelation, <laughs> it's just a philosophical system. It doesn't come from the Bible; it's being forced onto the Bible. It's it's a means of getting rid of problems that actually reading the Bible brings about. So what we're going to see in this in this uh, this thing here uh, is that um, Molinism can just skip over certain questions because it's not a divine revelation, anyways. And so the questions that come up is, well, is God able to save everyone? Well, you could, I suppose, 
you know, theorize that no, he, he can't. And in fact, uh, uh, William Lane Craig has theorized that the world we are in is the best possible world with the maximum number of people being saved. But Molinism has to go, well, what about the existence of sin? Because there's a whole lot of sin. And so is the Molinist idea that God is getting the maximum number of people saved with the minimum amount of sin? Could God have saved, could God have had much less evil, but then as a result had much fewer people saved? And so God runs all these calculations. And like I said, the big quantum computer, and he comes up with the best world. And that's where we are. That's that, this is the best world. And you're free, but not really. Because middle knowledge... See, see remember the illustration I used a couple weeks ago when I said, does God know what I'm going to have for dinner on Christmas Eve in 2021? And if God does know, am I free to have something else for dinner on Christmas Eve in 2021? Because if God's foreknowledge is perfect, then it could not be falsified. Because if I have something other than what God has eternally known I was going to have, then he was operating on false knowledge, and his knowledge has been falsified. And that has all sorts of implications for things regarding prophecy and, and stuff like that. Well, in the Molinist perspective, God knows what you're going to have, even though you freely chose to have it for dinner on Christmas Eve in 2021. And you can't have anything else. But you have it freely, except that what determined that you were going to have it freely was this middle knowledge thing that God didn't create. We're not sure who did. How is that actually a better system than having a God who works both in eternity and time and has assured us that events in time are meaningful? It, it doesn't. That's... That's why I find Molinism to be just an empty philosophical waste of time. But it's popular among certain people. And so that's what this guy's asking about. And he's asking, if God picks which world is created, and in that world someone I know is not saved and cannot be saved, is this suggesting that in no such world would that person ever be saved? That's a valid question. So when God, the quantum computer, is running the numbers, is there, did he get down to 10 final worlds, 10 finalists, and your friend, the person being referred to here, was saved in four out of the 10, but none of those four ended up giving the maximum total number, and so they will not be saved. How is that a, not a choice on God's part? That's why I, I just look at Molinism and go, it does not answer anything. It raises more questions and it's just, and it makes every single prophet and apostle go, huh? What, what are you talking about? Where did you come up with that? Um, so you end up with more questions, bad answers, and the most important thing is, it ain't biblical. Good reason not to believe it. So, anyway... Interesting question, because it's saying, 
is that is this suggesting that in no such world would that person ever be saved? Now, I have heard Craig say that there are certain people who would not be saved in any possible world. That there are people God cannot save. Now, does God get to actuate worlds where there are fewer of those people he actually ends up creating? Because again, does he just have this massive pile of light bright things he can just plug in to create these worlds? I do we then just assume that God has created a world in which everyone who can be saved in any world will be saved and any who can't be saved won't be? And if that's the case, what good is human prayer in this situation? Doesn't it kind of just make it so that anyone who prays for what God has already done is going to have his or her prayer answered and that the others won't? I would have thought the answer would be that God would have factored human prayer into his decision-making and plan for the world, not that we change God's mind per se, but it seems like if God's creation decree already established salvation and damnation, does it matter? When I try and ponder God's foreknowledge in my life, I have horrible doubts. I feel incredibly depressed and guilty because my mind cannot reconcile it all. Now, I don't know why would you, you would feel depressed and guilty by not being able to reconcile God's timelessness. That's, that concerns me, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I feel like Calvinism suggests that God predetermines everything and we are all following a script, which makes everything seem meaningless to me and to Dr. Craig, as he says in his answer. But middle knowledge seems to suggest that God predetermines us by choosing which world we exist in, so it seems like it's not too different from Calvinism. It's just a step higher. I would love clarification here. (laughs) I don't think it's a step higher. And then Arminianism, it's supposed to be Arminianism, suggests that God draws all to him, but not all are saved. Yet God does things in the world that bring people to salvation, salvation, yet does not do them to some other people, which suggests either arbitrary behavior or some form of higher knowledge. I generally hate it because I have always been a relatively strong Christian, but I've opened this Pandora's box that I cannot figure out how to shut. I know this question was a bit rambly, and I know that someone other than Dr. Craig, is probably going to answer, which is cool, but I guess my final question is, how do you live life with joy? How do you not fear that someday, that maybe someday, something might happen that brings doubt into your heart, and then you start to wonder, like, what if I'm one of those people who could never be saved and just thought I was? I know it sounds ridiculous, but I worry myself about this kind of thing and genuinely seeking the advice of fellow Christians on this matter. I never thought about this kind of stuff until I got into the whole foreknowledge debate. Unfortunately, this kind of discussion goes way beyond the current level of understanding of the members of my church, and I can't really have this kind of discourse. Thanks very much for all input. Mike in the United States. Well, I would hope that Mike in the United States six years ago, uh, seven years ago, um, would find a church with elders who have thought through these things and would be able to provide a thoroughly biblical and balanced response This is a question that um, obviously Reformed elders deal with fairly regularly. I mean, this this comes up in fellowship meetings and and Bible studies and and everything else on a fairly regular basis. And there is really... When people say, you know, all that stuff, I just don't know that it's all that meaningful... Here's a situation where you have a real pastoral application because there are people who really do struggle with these things. And the answer is not to say, well, just don't worry about it. 
the answer that an Arminian, the answer that a Molinist, and the answer that a Reformed theologian are going to give are going to be different. They are going to be functionally different from one another. And obviously, we would say that one of them could be considerably more consistent and biblical than the others. But you can't just simply go, you know, we just shouldn't talk about things like that. Remember about two weeks ago now, I read from the Institutes and read from one of the sections where Calvin was saying, we are literally questioning the wisdom of the Holy Spirit of God when we say, and he said, I respect these people. I understand their concerns. But he said, we're questioning God's wisdom when we are unwilling to talk about that which the Holy Spirit himself has given to us in Scripture. If the triune God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture his eternal nature and his eternal decree, then these are things that we are to have to struggle with. And they may be, it may be a struggle. It may be difficult for us. Uh, but these are things we, we have to do. Now, Craig's response uh, runs along these lines. Um, to begin with, it is inaccurate to say that on Molinism, God picks which world is created, and in that world someone I know is not saved and cannot be saved. That person who is unsaved can be saved, and is being lost as a result of his free rejection of God's saving grace and is contrary to God's will for his life. On Molinism, his destiny lies in his own hands, not God's. That's my comment there. It's not clear what you mean when you say, in no such world would that person ever be saved. Obviously, in no world in which the person is not saved is he saved. But there are possible worlds in which that person is saved. Perhaps you're asking whether there are feasible worlds in which that person is saved. Molinism is neutral on that question. So he starts off with a great autonomous will of man is in charge of everything. But then when he really gets down to what's actually being said, he says, yeah, we don't know. Molinism is neutral on that question. What's that question? Perhaps you're asking whether there are feasible worlds in which that person is saved. So could, there, could God have actuated a feasible world in which that person could have been saved? And it says Molinism is neutral on that question. The Molinist could hold that that person is unsaved in every feasible world in which he exists, but that is not inherent to Molinism. Oh, okay. The more you push on this system, uh, I, I, I watched, recently I watched, because I've, I've always enjoyed both of them, the 1960 version of The Time Machine. Remember that one? And then early 2000s, they did a remake. It was really good. Uh, changed the plot just a little bit, but it was, it was really well done. And of course, things had advanced a little bit in... CGI and things like that uh, since 1960. Um, I mean, the Morlocks were a whole lot uglier, uh, scarier in the modern version, uh, but they were pretty ugly and scary in the in the original version too. Almost on a cooler level because they didn't have all the CGI. It was actually actors going oh, glowing eyes and stuff like that. Anyway, 
Uh, and that I like time stuff. Uh, you know, my favorite Star Trek stuff is time things like that and and, and things like that. Anyway, um, so you you've got we have this idea. Um, and in in that one, one of the big in the, in the second one, what they introduced was the idea of paradox. It's the the time traveler is trying to save this woman's life, his fiance. He's he's once he's just given her the ring, and she's robbed. They're robbed, and she's shot and killed. And so he builds a time machine to go back and to save her. Well, when he goes back, and they run from where she had been killed, she gets run over by a horse. No matter what he does, she dies. Can't save it. Can't stop it. This was the big question that he's struggling with all along. Sorry if I just ruined it for you. I didn't mean to do that, but the movie's like 2003 or something. I forget when it, when it was. But just, um, so it raises issues of what, what, what is the purpose of God in creation? And so... When it says here, the Molinist could hold that that person is unsaved in every feasible world in which he exists, but that is not inherent to Molinism. It's so purely theoretical. Maybe, but we don't know. But we'll criticize the Calvinists for having an answer because they keep going to those same old texts, like Acts 4 or Isaiah 10 or whatever else. His answer goes on, You ask, do we then just assume that God has created a world in which everyone who can be saved in any world will be saved and any who can't be saved won't be? Obviously not. Otherwise, there would be an infinite number of people in the world. Really, your question seems so confused it's hard for me to make sense of it. Maybe you're asking whether anyone who is unsaved in the actual world is unsaved in every feasible world. And the answer is that Molinism is neutral in that regard. (laughs) The answer is, we don't have an answer. Maybe you're asking whether someone who is saved in the actual world is unsaved in some other feasible world. Again, Molinism doesn't pronounce on this, but why not? As for the efficacy of prayer, I agree with you that God would have factored human prayer into his decision-making and plan for the world, not that we change God's mind per se. God's choice of a world may take into account the prayers people would offer in those worlds. So that prayer really does make a difference. To think that, just stop for a second. Everybody, Arminian, everybody in classical theism, has to deal with the issue of prayer. We've talked about it numerous times on the program. We've talked about how prayer is meant to change us, not change God. Uh, we have talked about the insuperable difficulties that arise if you limit God's knowledge of the future. So open theism is a heresy. Um, it is not representative of the God of Scripture in, in any way, shape, or form. Open theists do not... Do not believe that God has perfect knowledge of what free creatures will do in the future. So, when God created, he had no idea that 9-11 would happen. He knew he did not have any idea we'd develop atomic weapons and drop them on cities or anything like that at all. And, he, and he's stunned that we've done these things. Um, 
But classical theism has always rejected that kind of a God is learning and growing and getting better as he goes along type idea. And so outside of that, the Molinist has to deal with prayer, the Reformed person has to deal with prayer, the Arminian has to deal with prayer. The Arminian is stuck with the idea that, that prayer is changing God, that, that you're, you're basically trying to convince God to be better than he actually is, to, to do more than he's actually doing. The Reformed person says that prayer is how God changes me, that he is already perfect and always has been perfect, and that prayer is, is a supernatural activity where I am conformed to his will. The Molinist here is saying something really strange. God's choice of a world may take into account the prayers people would offer in those worlds so that prayer really does make a difference. So instead of the intimate communion of the redeemed soul with God, whereby through the ministration of the Holy Spirit, we are changed into the image of Christ and his will is made known to us and our will is made conformable to his will. The last thing a true believer wants to be is autonomous. That's the last thing a true believer wants to be. We want our will to be in full harmony with God's, not the other way around. But in Molinism, God may take into consideration the prayers that may be said based upon middle knowledge in determining whether to bring a world into existence. Now, I never heard anybody, I'll be honest with you, I've never heard anybody in any situation pray, God, bring the world where I'm saved into existence. I'm praying this Molinistically, <laughs> in case in, in in case you're looking down through the corridors of time as you are as you're playing with your light bright set and seeing which world to to actuate, I want to pray that you make this world where I exist and I'm a believer come into existence so I can be saved. I've I've, I've heard some interesting prayers. That's not one of them I have ever heard. I will I will confess. You hear that in a Monty, Rich hears that in a Monty Python voice. That's, that tells, <laughs> a little bit like the hand grenade of Antioch. Yes. Uh, th- thanks a lot, Rich. Appreciate that. I'm glad you didn't turn the camera on for that because that would have, that would have been used against you in a court of law. Um, so uh, we continue on, but then oddly, you turn around and ask, if it doesn't matter, because God's create, creation decree already established salvation and damnation. But Mike, you already said that God's creation decree factored in those prayers, so obviously it does matter. So the creation decree for William Lane Craig is secondary, secondary to human action. No question about it. I mean, that's it's stated right there. It's stated right there. Um, well, anyways. Uh, it, it goes on from there. It, like I said, if you want to see the rest of it, it's question number 326. You can go to Reasonable Faith to take a look at it. Uh, but it's always good to remind ourselves of why Molinism is a really, really, really bad choice. <laughs> this doesn't... I, I, I can't tell you how many people I have encountered who have said, oh, yeah, I, I think the best way around it, I think Molinism. And then, then you start pressing. 
just just a little bit. And well, you know, I, I haven't read much about it, but I, you know, it seems to just sort of answer all the questions, and 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 it's like, no, it doesn't really answer any questions actually. It leaves the big questions um, out there. All right. Got a few minutes to get back to uh, what we have committed to doing. Um, looking, We got some, some more Augustine to read. If you like church history, this is where you tune in. Oh, I just realized I saw a request. I'm sorry. Someone requested something in Slack, and I, I, haven't, I was going to do it when I got in, and I forgot. Apologies. I'll get to it. Um, remind me after the program to check Slack and... Someone needs a reference from me, and I'll, uh, I'll, yeah, you got it there? Yeah. Yeah, I'll uh, try to do that after the program. I apologize. Didn't mean to put anybody off. Uh, just slipped my mind. That happens a lot these days. Yep, I'll, I'll get to it. Um, so we have been doing what we have been challenged to do, and we're seeking to do a thorough job. Um, and... I have been looking at a particular section. I'm going to be looking at a few sections over time uh, in the dissertation by Kenneth Wilson. We took a little bit of a break yesterday by looking at what Kenneth Wilson said about James 2 because that allowed us to go into a completely different area of discussion, uh, the whole lordship salvation issue, um, whole biblical gospel issue, really, when you think about it. But uh, back to the dissertation, and this will allow us, again, to be doing more reading in Augustine. And those of you who are church history fans, even if you're not, these are important theological issues. I hope you'll stick with me. I think I've, I've had a number of people mention that, you know, I, I'm not necessarily overly excited about the, the Ken Wilson dissertation itself, but man, the stuff you're talking about does have wide application. Uh, Manichaeism, Gnosticism, um, church history, and the various things that Augustine was dealing with, so it is important. So, from, uh, from the station, page 184, quote, speaking of Augustine, he correctly cites 30 scriptures demonstrating free choice, but then he repeats Fortunatus's Manichaean divine unilateral predetermination of individuals, eternal destinies, interpretation of John 6.65. Now, we've already started looking at this because this is something I've been chasing through the citations. To establish the thesis that is being promoted by Ken Wilson and the Provisionists, that those of us who are Reformed are nothing but deceived Manichaeans who uh, believe we believe because Augustine told us to believe it, and we've just simply, that's all we read. Uh, We don't read the Bible, we don't study Greek, we don't study church history, we don't know anything about any of these things, and no one ever knew anything about this Augustine, about Augustine, until Ken Wilson revealed these things to us. Um, That's where Calvin got everything, and and we saw yesterday, just yesterday, why do we have problems with James 2? It's Augustine. Augustine is the biggest problem in all of church history, from Ken Wilson's perspective. Um, I really don't think Augustine has diddly to do with the issue in James chapter 2, but there you go. Uh, so here, what I've been, what, what you'd have to do to establish this thesis is to have an extensively in-depth section 
establishing the parameters and norms with examples from Manichaean writings, from Gnostic writings, from Stoic writings, um, from Neoplatonic writings, uh, and from Qumran, since those are the five things that he likes to refer to when he talks about dupied, this divine unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies. Um, when, when he says that interpretation of John 6.65, then there needs to be an understanding of what that hermeneutical system is. What is this hermeneutical system that can provide you with a dupied interpretation of John 6.65? What, what does that look like? So, if you open your Bible... And you turn to John 6.65, and he does say compare um, John 6.64. Did it again. Select all. Thank you. John 6.65. He also says, look at uh, 6.44. And he was saying, this is Jesus' conclusion at the end of the discourse in the synagogue in Capernaum. For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Udais dunatai, elfine prosme. No one is able to come to me, Ion, unless, Ion may, a dedomenon auto ectu patras. It has been granted to him by the Father. And so, John 6, 44, no one come to me unless... The Father draws him. Now, do these words have a meaning prior to the birth of of many? Before Manichaeism was developed? Did did they have a meaning before the first Gnostic ever encountered the Gospel of John? How do we determine that meaning? Well, we determine that meaning by the historical grammatical method of interpretation. We look at the author— We look at the author's words, we look at the meaning of the words, we look at the grammar, the syntax, the lexicography, and we look at to whom he's writing, and we do our best to place that data in the context of John chapter 6, in the context of the book of John, in the context of who John was and what John wrote, and in the context of the entirety of the New Testament. So, the question that would have to have pages and pages of meaningful argumentation, and as you can tell, there are no pages of meaningful argumentation on this, pages and pages of meaningful argumentation is the establishment of this hermeneutical form. What is a Manichaean interpretation of John 6.65? What what? methodology did they use? What did they do with grammar? What did they do with the meanings of words? What was their ultimate interpretive lens? There should be chapters on this, if the thesis has any merit at all. Without it, there is no reason to give any credence whatsoever to the thesis. Okay, so that's why I've been looking at these particular things, because here's a great example. 
Here's a great example. He correctly cites 30 scriptures demonstrating free choice. And again, I just, I, I need to point something out. This is a, the language in the dissertation is exceptionally biased. It, it clearly shows Wilson's theology determining what he's going to see in Augustine. So when Augustine says something he doesn't like, this is a game that he's playing, he's changing meanings, he's doing all this, this type of stuff. Um, here, he correctly cites 30 scriptures demonstrating free choice, because that's, of course, true, because that's what we believe. But then he repeats Fortunatus's Manichaean dupied interpretation of John 6.65. So as soon as I saw it, I'm like, ah, okay, well, haven't found the part yet where we have all that in-depth discussion. But maybe this will, maybe if I go to Augustine, because this is, you know, I've given, I'm giving a reference here, we'll be able to figure this out. We'll be able to see how Manichaeism, how does, how does a fully uh, dualistic system that has an eternal realm of light and eternal realm of darkness, that they're equal with one another, that one does not give rise to the other. Pure, full-on dualism, even more so than the Gnostics were, because at least in Gnosticism, the, the, the divine origin of all things, you know, the, 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 the fallen order, the material order, comes from emanations down and is not equal to or eternal. So it's not as dualistic as Manichaeism. Manichaeism is fully dualistic. All right, how does dualism deal with John 6.65? What, what is it about being a Manichae that will give an interpretation of John 6.65 that you and I would not see, or as Reformed people, will this turn the light on so we can see, oh, I just thought I was reading the text. I, I just thought I was following the grammar, but actually I'm, this is flowing from an emanation from the king of the kingdom of light. And the light spark that is trapped within me testifies of this. I'm sorry, it's just... Okay, here's the Augustine actual. Here's what Augustine actually said. When God says, turn ye unto me, and I will turn unto you, one of these clauses, that which invites our return to God, evidently belongs to our will, while the other, which promises his return to us, belongs to his grace. Here, possibly, the Pelagians think they have a justification for their opinion, which they so prominently advance, that God's grace is given according to our merits. In the east, indeed, that is to say, in the province of Palestine, in the city of Jerusalem, Pelagius, when examined in person by the bishop, did not venture to affirm this. For it happened that among the objections which were brought up against him, this in particular was objected, that he maintained that the grace of God was given according to our merits, an opinion which was so diverse from Catholic doctrine and so hostile to the grace of Christ that unless he had anathematized it as laid to his charge, he himself must have been anathematized on its account. He pronounced indeed the required anathema upon the dogma, but how insincerely his later books plainly show. For in them he maintains absolutely no other opinion than that the grace of God is given according to our merits. Such passages do they collect out of the scriptures, 
like the one which I just now quoted, turn ye unto me and I will turn unto you, as if it were owing to the merit of our turning to God that his grace were given to us, wherein he himself even turns unto us. Now the persons who hold this opinion fail to observe that unless our turning to God were itself God's gift, it would not be said to him in prayer, turn us again, O God of hosts, and thou, O God, wilt turn and quicken us, and again, turn us, O God, of our salvation. With other passages of similar import, too numerous to mention here. For with respect to our coming unto Christ, what else does it mean than our being turned to him by believing? And yet he says, no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Did, did, did you miss the Manichaean stuff? Did, did you miss the citation of Fortunatus? You see, that was a understandable, meaningful discussion of the priority of grace in conversion. There was nothing about Manichaeism. There was nothing about Gnosticism. There was nothing about Stoicism. There was nothing from the Kaman community. There was nothing about Neoplatonism. This was a meaningful discussion concerning what Pelagius is saying about the relationship of grace and merit. The citation of John 6.65 is at the end of the paragraph. No interpretation is given in the sense of and as Fortunatus said, no. And so, how do we understand this sentence? He correctly cites 30 scriptures demonstrating free choice, but then he repeats Fortunatus' Manichaean dupied interpretation of John 6.65. The only way this can make any sense is that he believes that Fortunatus interpreted John 6.65 in such a way that it speaks of a sovereign action of God. And therefore, that makes it Manichaean. So no, so, and no one else before that would ever have believed that, so that, therefore it must have come from Manichaeism. So we, you know, we forget about Clement, and we, we, we forget about the Epistle of Diognetus, and then even amongst the many people that I would agree were strongly synergists, there are still strong statements of utter divine sovereignty in many of the early church fathers. Were they consistent about that? No, they were not. But it's still there. And so, the only way this can make any sense is that basically what he's saying is, well, a heretic once interpreted this verse, you cited it, and therefore, you must agree with the heretic. You must have gotten your understanding from the heretic. But there is no effort even expended to try to make the connection. Oh, but it's enough that, well, he was a Manichaean here for nine years, and so therefore it just must be that. No one's ever changed their views. No one's, no one's ever actually converted to the Christian faith. You, you don't read Scripture. You, the scripture has never changed anyone's actual interpretation. I don't know about you, but at least we get to read some great stuff from Augustine. 
while going, oh, well, what we needed to find there wasn't there. That's because it's not there. That's because it's not there. Wilson, same page. More Augustine coming. Same page. Ignoring both the Greek and Latin, he again proof texts Ephesians 2.8 for faith is God's gift. This heralds an alarming repetition of an a priori theology driving an impossible exegesis of a crucial text. Now, we've already looked at Wilson saying that what Ephesians 2 is talking about, and that not yourselves, refers to the entirety of the preceding clause, which includes faith. He's right that it's a preceding, but we've also pointed out from other sources numerous quotations from people before Augustine who believed that faith was specifically the antecedent, not just one of three, but the antecedent. Augustine didn't invent that. And those other people weren't Manichaeans before they were Christians. So, but but did you catch the prejudicial language? Every single time I read, there's prejudicial Ignoring the Greek and Latin, he again proof texts. It, it, what I'm seeing is someone who reads Augustine, takes notes about stuff that he can take shots at, and then compiles it into this dissertation. Into a lot of the argumentation. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Doesn't that sound like doesn't that sound like something you would write down as you're reading? You you give a reference and ignoring both the Greek and the Latin, he again proof text Ephesians 2 8 for faith as God's gift. This heralds an alarming repetition of an a priori theology driving an impossible exegesis of a crucial text. What did Augustine actually say? Augustine actual here's what he says. His last clause runs thus I have kept the faith. But he who says this is the same who declares in another passage, I have obtained mercy that I might be faithful. He does not say, I obtained mercy because I was faithful, but in order that I might be faithful, thus showing that even faith itself cannot be had without God's mercy, and that it is the gift of God. This he very expressly teaches us when he says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. They might possibly say, we received grace because we believed, as if they would attribute the faith to themselves and the grace to God. Therefore, the apostle, having said, you are saved through faith, added, and that not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. And again, lest they should say they deserve so great a gift by their works, he immediately added, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not that he denied good works or emptied them of their value when he says that God renders to every man according to his works, but because works proceed from faith and not faith from works. Therefore, it is from him that we have works of righteousness, from whom comes also faith itself, concerning which it is written, the just shall live by faith. I don't know about you, but it, it may be Dr. Wilson's intention to provide reasons to dislike Augustine. But the more I get to read of Augustine, he sounds a whole lot more focused and on target than Dr. Wilson does. A whole lot more. I hope you're appreciating it. Uh, These are important issues. And 
These are issues we have conversations about to this very day. We really do. Because the relationship of grace, faith, works, merit, vitally important. Can't, can't avoid it. Can't avoid it. Um, continue on, page 100. Augustine, Augustine exposed as absurd the radical Manichaean doctrine of divine unilateral predetermination of individual eternal destinies devoid of personal accountability. Fortunatus, here he is again, cited John 14, 6. No one can come to the Father except through me. Since, quote, he chose souls worthy of himself for his own holy will and were imbued with a, fa- a faith. Fortunatus 3. Now, this is important. Um, because, remember, we've, we've talked about Manichaean cosmology, and we have come to understand that salvation is by digestion. <laughs> And that the elect are not chosen. The elect in Manichaeism does not mean elect in the Bible. Um, And that there really isn't that that, that trying to create a parallel is trying to create something that simply doesn't exist. But in the West, once Manichaeism began interacting with the church, debates took place. Arguments took place. Here's one of them. Fortunatus is quoted as saying, he chose souls worthy of himself for his own will and were imbued with the faith. What did Augustine actually say in that reference? This is interesting. Fortunatus said, and our profession is this very thing, that God is incorruptible, lucid, unapproachable, intenable, impassable, that he inhabits his own eternal lights, and that nothing corruptible proceeds from him, neither darkness, demons, Satan, nor anything adverse can be found in his kingdom. So in other words, that's all the kingdom of light, all the rest of that stuff's in the kingdom of darkness. But that he sent forth a savior like himself. Remember, in Manichaeism, that's not the historical Jesus. There are a couple of different Jesuses. That the word born from the foundation of the world, when he had formed the world, after the formation of the world came among men. When he had formed the world? So that's weird, because many, there was no formation from the kingdom of light. After the formation of the world came among men, that he has chosen souls worthy of himself according to his own holy will, sanctified by celestial command, imbued with the faith and reason of celestial things, that under his leadership those souls will return hence again to the kingdom of God according to the holy promise of him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the door. They always say the door for some reason. I'm not sure. And no one can come unto me except through me. That's not a direct quotation either. These things we believe because otherwise, that is, through another mediator, souls cannot return to the kingdom of God unless they find him as the way, the truth, and the door. Remember, the door is the releasing of the light, Milky Way, moon, sun, back into the kingdom of light. Isn't it amazing how you can clothe such a utterly unbiblical and untenable perspective in biblical, biblical language? Um, this would have been extremely, uh, I, I don't know if I would have been able to follow this as well. If I had first been an introduced Manichaeism, if I hadn't already had decades of knowledge of Mormonism, because Mormonism 
takes our language and clothes a wildly different understanding of God and who he is and the universe and everything else in Christian language. But you got to admit, the Mormon story isn't as weird as the Manichaean story. I mean, at least you still have personal gods and, and you, you don't have exaltation by digestion. It's better than nothing. <laughs> Rich is making faces and everything. Um, <clears throat> Wilson, page 172. Um, oh, is this the one? I thought there was somewhere in here. Uh, there it is. Good, 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 good. This is one I wanted to get to. We're running out of time. Wilson, page 172. Augustine misses the context. I'm not, I'm just quoting this stuff. And every single quote is a shot at Augustine, at how, how, what a false teacher he was and how badly he manhandled scripture and all the rest of this stuff. Augustine misses the context those having already believed in Christ, John 8, 31-32, of setting Christians free from the experiential slavery of sin. Now, I marked that, and I, I want to make sure you catch that, because this, I think, is a situation where his theology comes in. Because in John eight thirty one, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now remember, by the end of the chapter, these are the people picking up stones to stone Jesus. These are not true believers. But remember, in his theology, everybody's a true believer. Everybody who believes is a true believer. There's no such thing as false faith. So I think that's what this comment is, that Augustine misses the context, those having already believed in Christ of setting Christians free from the experiential slavery of sin. So, yeah, this is what he's arguing. He's actually arguing that what you have in John 8, it's one sentence, but what you have in John 8 is that what's going on here is they've already been saved. And what Jesus is now saying is, if you continue my word, then you are true my disciples. You know, the truth, the truth will make you free. Free from the slavery to sin. See? This is what happens when you will not recognize that Jesus' parables about the soil, the warnings Jesus gives. There are false believers. There are people who say they have faith that do not have faith. And see, this is, when, you get, when you become so overemphasized on the autonomy of the human will, that as long as there's faith, that's faith, you're saved, boom, then you're looking at John chapter 8, and the guys that pick up stones to stone Jesus are going to heaven. Bing, 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 bing. Wow. Uh, he teaches, I'm going back to Wilson, he teaches human will is free only to sin by nature since free choice has not been set free by the Savior. He assumes Philippians 1, 28-29 means initial faith is given by God, although absent in the text. Although absent in the text. Let me come back to that one. Let me read the rest of it. <clears throat> After using Ephesians 4.23, he applies John 6.44, catch this, exactly as Fortunatus the Manichaean had done. Are you starting to get this type of argumentation now? 
it's it's all guilt by association. So I can find many places where Ken Wilson will give the same interpretation a Jehovah's Witness gives. Therefore, Ken Wilson is actually a Jehovah's Witness. Right? Why not? He does it to Augustine on every page. Well, you have to establish a connection. Well, let's say let's say Ken Wilson was was converted from Jehovah's Witnesses. Would that be enough? Or is no one ever really truly converted? Really, the question. Um, after da, 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 yet Augustine had objected to the Manichaeans misusing John six forty four for divine unilateral presentation of individual eternal destinies. Did Fortunatus or Augustine write the following? There's a long quotation. Augustine synthesizes Christian free choice with Gnostic, Manichaean, and Neoplatonic divine unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies by adopting Stoic freedom into a non-free free will. It is damned at birth, only free to sin until free. Are you seeing that this is just simply the repetition of the same thing over and over again without any meaningful argumentation actually accompanying it? Yeah. I mean, just, just look at Gnostic, Manichaean, Neoplatonic, just in, oh, and and Stoic. There we go. Almost hit all. Only missed Qumran. All thrown into a single sentence. Even though each one of them has very different cosmologies, backgrounds, understanding of God, understanding of man, understanding of the will, understanding of everything. But as long as you can find one thing to just stick them all together, oh, and it happens to be the same thing those Calvinists believe, for completely different reasons, but that's my bat, and I'm going to swing it, and I'm going to keep swinging it hard. I'm going to keep swinging it hard. That's what this is. That's what this is. Um, there is, by the way, no citation of John 6.44 in that section, Fortunatus 16-22, let alone any doopy. This is not there. I'm not going to read six sections to you, but I read it, and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Uh, but I want to go back to uh, Philippians 128-29, specifically 129. And I want to do something here. Oops. Now, are you able to get this? Ooh, look at that. Isn't that pretty? Ah, good. This is what I wanted to get to. We'll close off the show with uh, with this even though i'm starting to get a little bit uh, sensitive to saying things like that because i've been picking on jeff and how many times jeff will say in a sermon we'll close with this and he'll say then we'll close with this and, and and our last point is and 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 in one sermon he did it six times and so now i'm starting to get a little paranoid when i say stuff like that too i, I need to be careful uh love you jeff anyway here is philippians 129 and i, I i've broken it into the phrases so you can see what it is the Apostle Paul says. Because to you, it has been granted. See, see the term here? Ekariste, you see the root? Same root as charis, grace. It has been granted. It has been given to you. Tahu per Christu, in behalf of Christ. So, humin is plural. So, he's talking to the church at Philippi. So to the church of Philippi, it has been granted you in behalf of Christ. So the Spirit of God accomplishing the glorification of Jesus Christ and the will of the Father, it has been granted to the believers at Philippi in the church, umanon, not only ta isautan pistuine, 
a la Kai, but also tahu per atu paskine. So please notice you have a, what's called an infinitive here. If you see the ein ending, pistuein, it's the infinitive, pistuein, and then paskine, to suffer, to believe, to suffer, the infinitival forms. So, what has been granted to the church in behalf of Christ? Not only, so the umanon is paired with alakai. So that's that, uh, umanon alakai. Not only this, but also that. That's a standard phraseology in, in Greek. So there's two things that have been granted. Not only ta isautan pistuon. Not only to believe in him, but also on behalf of him to suffer. Now, let me just ask a simple question. Can you uh, minimize that down? Because it should be big enough to see if it's in a small box. There we go. Um, Is it a part of God's sovereign will that his people suffer in behalf of the name of Jesus? If you have to even think about the answer to that one, you've never read the book of Acts. Because it is. In fact, Paul talks about, he talks to the Colossians about our filling up the sufferings of Christ because we're in the body. And it's a mysterious thing. It's a very spiritual thing, but it is God's intention that our sufferings bring glory to Christ and that they are a part of his sufferings through us. It's an amazing thing. It has been granted to believers in behalf of Christ that they suffer for him. If, that, if the middle fr- uh, section wasn't there, no one would really have any objections to what is said here. It could be very clear. It has been granted to you in behalf of Christ to suffer for his sake. But that's not all it says. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So, if this infinitive, this is an infinitival phrase, so you have an article at the front. See ta? Ta pistuon. Ta is... Fun- is, is uh, Making this a, a an infinitival phrase, so you put the isauton in between the article and the infinitive, make this again. This is how Greek paints with colors. You can do it with participles. Here you're doing it with infinitives. But notice the parallel. If ta with paskine here is what is granted up here then ta with pistuine is what is granted here as well. It is granted for you to believe in him. Pistuo, I believe. That's faith. Pistis, faith. That's what it says. It's been granted you to believe in him. Now, what did Dr. Wilson say? I'll uh, bring that down uh, now. There we go. What did Dr. Wilson say uh, at the end of that section? That it was 
absent from the text. Ignoring Greek and Latin, absent from the text. It's not absent from the text at all. It's right there. It's right in front of us. It's right in front of us. So I appreciate the opportunity once again to have been able to explain um, where that is coming from, what scriptures are saying, and provide correction to the errors found in Dr. Wilson's dissertation at Oxford. There's more to come. There's more to come. And uh, uh, Chris uh, on our team has been posting uh, materials to our blog. It's really nice to have somebody other than me. Um, As I mentioned, there are two gentlemen who are actually working on a book. Um, We're going to find a time when they are closer to the completion of that work uh, to have them on as well. And, um, you know, I would think that this would be invited by the other side. Uh, Because, I mean, I know... I know my Dr. Vater, for my PhD work, if it can get past him, it can get past anybody. <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. My, my, my doctoral advisor did his PhD under Metzger. I, I can't do this kind of stuff. I can't get away with it. Now, the subject matter is completely different. There's no question about that. But I, I, can't, get, I, I can't get away with unsubstantiated, biased, prejudiced statements. I'm not even going to try. I, I would be embarrassed to do it. Um, so, and once again, they started calling us, right? Uh, Rich, <laughs> just just want to make sure. For those of you people who are going, I just can't believe I'm mean and terrible and nasty. I don't know. We're doing we're doing what we've been challenged to do, and hopefully edifying in the process. So, Lord willing, on Thursday. Oh yeah, yeah. Lord willing, we'll be back together again on Thursday. And I appreciate the attention that you give, the support you've been giving to us. We will continue on on Thursday. See you then. God bless.